You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. All right. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to begin uh, tonight with. Uh, I don't know, again, I don't ever know how many weeks these are going to take because I don't study these completely in advance uh, just as we go, but uh, we're going to begin tonight with a study in the book of James, so if you want to make your way there. This uh, this letter was actually the first of the Old Testament writings. It was it's the oldest of of anything of the of the New Testament. It's kind of like how odd it seems that Job is the oldest of all the Old Testament books. Uh, well, James is the oldest of all the New Testament books. By the time that he wrote it. Uh, in the context of when he wrote it, uh, it's it's older than it's older than the others. James, this particular James, there are several of them in the scripture, but this particular James uh, was called James the Just, uh, but he was also one of Jesus's brothers. That adds a little bit of uniqueness to this book uh, because, as you'll notice very you know very quickly in the reading of it. Uh, the name Jesus is used in the in the right at the very beginning and only one other time in the in the whole book, and it's really believed that he did it because he didn't ever want to for someone to believe that he was taking privileges with what he was saying because he was Jesus's brother. So he just didn't refer and and use that name very much. Uh, this is also the James that presided. Uh, over the church in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 12, in that conversation that he had with Paul. Uh, Paul was kind of assigned to go out and uh, in these churches, and James was to take over the responsibilities of that mother church or home church in Jerusalem. Uh, the letter is primarily, this is one of the reasons it kind of caught my attention, the letter is written particularly to Jewish Christians to warn them against certain faults which they showed and to instruct them on how to grow in the Christian faith. And with what the Lord had been showing me over the last few months, you know, we're talking about people who came out of a very structured, very rigorous uh, look at God through the Old Testament laws, the religion of the day that they had been taught and that they that they valued. But now they are stepping into Christianity, into into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they're being persecuted. They are uh, they're experiencing a very different result than what their former faith in the, in the law had given them, now, they're, now they're, their belief in Jesus Christ has become very trying and, and testing of, of 
their resolve because, I mean, this was brand new to them. They'd been within Judaism for a long time. Now, they're, now it's very serious. And it's not that we are as that we are being as openly persecuted as as they were, but in some ways we're right on the cusp of it. it. You don't have to read very long. You don't have to read very far to recognize that there is there's becoming an extreme isolation of those who would say that they that they have a faith or believe in belief in Jesus Christ. It it it. I'm amazed at where I find it and how often, uh, you know, I have, I'll make a comment at the end of this when the recording is off, but I, again, I'm amazed at, the, at where Christians are being singled out and how they're, and how they're being treated. So I, I know it's not like this day when they were just being openly killed as it, as it was when James wrote this, but it, but it, but we, there's a, there's a good reason to understand that we too are going to have to choose at some point to stand in the face of resistance and speak of our faith. We we still live in an area where it can be fairly freely done, but that will eventually change as well. We are in we are in James chapter one, so if you wanna if you wanna join us there. Uh, he talked about their faults, about what was going on. They, again, they had, they had began to follow, but there were certain faults that, that he refers to. And primarily, these were those that uh, would be in, expected in Christians who had been Jews and who were now suffering. The, the, the type of things that they were dealing with would be very normal. The persecution that they were experiencing referred to was probably that under under Herod Agrippa the first. This is the same Herod that had been dealing with. We read we read all through the Gospels. Uh, the letter is believed again to be the earliest of all the writings of the New Testament, written in about forty five A.D. Uh, the writer again, who was the brother of Jesus, was himself martyred in ninety three A.D. So that would. Just a brief introduction. The, the, the book is broken down. The first section that we'll look at is trials and tribulations. That's largely chapter one. Uh, chapter two uh, is about where he's talking about their faults and the findings uh, as, he, as, he, as he speaks to this church or speaks to, the, to those believers. That takes up about three chapters. There is The last one is things he speaks of in terms of commands and prohibitions. And then the, the very last section is the postscript, which is just the last, the last couple of verses. There's five chapters in this book, and again, I don't have any idea how long it will take. So uh, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of, the, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So once again, there's the basics of, of what we know. James, it's interesting that he doesn't refer to himself. He doesn't mention here. He doesn't take any credit or any glory or any acknowledgement of being, of being Jesus' his brother. But uh, he, just, he just really avoids it completely. Uh, 
as I mentioned, it says Jesus Christ here. He's only mentioned one other time, and that's in James chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, if you study this particular James and how often he shows up, especially in the middle of, of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, it's not, you know, it's not only here that he doesn't mention Jesus, he doesn't mention Jesus in any other conversation. You look, in, you look, anything he says, even in the middle of Acts, he never mentions Jesus. And again, it's concluded that he didn't because he really, I guess you'd call it name dropping today. He just was not going to connect himself by any privilege or give himself any standing or draw any resistance because he was Jesus's half brother. Uh, his teachings were very practical. Again, that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to this book and always have been. They're not, they're not terribly doctrinal and because when you find that, you're going to find the use of Jesus' name much more. And, but it, he, he speaks very much to, to a practical life because, again, he was writing to people who were being persecuted. They needed something more than theory. They needed something more than just concepts. They needed something that was going to address their situations on the ground right now. And so that, that's the position from which he writes. He's writing to the 12 tribes. So again, James is the head of the church in Jerusalem, was by far dealing much more with Jewish culture and Jewish history, Jewish law, than, than Paul was as he was beginning to go to these outlying areas and began to preach and teach to them Jesus. That's what set up this contest and this confrontation in the middle of Acts because, because Paul began to hear that those in Jerusalem were trying to get these new believers to follow portions of the law. And Paul goes and confronts James very directly and Peter very directly in the middle of the book of Acts because, and he tells them, you know, why are you trying to take them under the law that we could not keep? So Paul takes a very firm stand and ultimately leaves James in charge of this church in Jerusalem, which is predominantly Jews, converted Jews. So it's not unexpected that James would address this group. But he also is writing, again, to those uh, who were scattered abroad. We've talked about this. Uh, because he literally means those of the dispersion. It's interesting to me how God does what he does. And I, I, I mention this because I, I hope we can connect God's actions then with God's actions now. That's, that's always my desire in teaching. I, I, I want what he did then to become fascinating enough that we'll search for him in what he's doing now because there was a plan. I, I believe there was a very specific plan that God would, through his blessing to Israel, the chosen people, that they were chosen not to just be blessed, but to be the blessing. This is what I mentioned on Sunday. What was the point of our, of, you know, at least some point of our salvation? 
some point of our being given the Holy Spirit, some point in dealing with us in our brokenness, dealing with us in, in, the, in the places where we're frail. What was the point? Not so that we could just be blessed, but so that we could be a blessing. We would not only be the evidence of God, but we could deliver the evidence of God. We would not only receive the love of God, but we would be the givers of the love of God. I don't believe that originated with us because we are grafted into the branch so that if we're grafted into that branch of Israel, I know that that was the intention that he had for Israel. Israel, as a blessed people, were designed to be a blessing to others. We need to take that seriously because we have, unfortunately, within the congregations of the Christian church, have processed God in terms of us being the lake in which he's pouring into us, and we keep crying God more, more, and more, and God's saying, I just wish you would unload what you already have. Let it flow through you, because somebody downstream of you is drying up, waiting for, for this dam to burst and the river to begin to flow downstream. Somebody is waiting. Kendall did that years ago with his, with his kids. You know, he, there were 20 or so probably in the room, and he gave them all a cup. And he said, I'm going to start pouring, and I don't want to stop pouring until all of your cups are full. So like, okay, how's this going to work? I don't know if he informed the first kid or if we just had an ex exceptionally smart kid being the first one, but almost immediately when Kendall started pouring, pouring that water, this kid took a pencil and poked a hole in the bottom of his cup. So what did the next kid do? Stuck his cup under there. And if I would end up poking a hole in the bottom and in the side, I could fill two at the same time. So Kendall filled every cup and never stopped pouring from the original one. See, it's just a real simple picture that we weren't just designed to be the, recip the, 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 to be the receiver of all that God has. We were designed to be that which, by which the blessing was delivered. So we see it all the way back here. But what happened? They refused. They, we can read in Matthew 21, 43, where he actually takes that from them and begins to deliver it through that which was grafted in, through the church. Again, the, the assignment didn't change. The intention of God was now through us as this branch grafted in, not to be the substitute for Israel because there is no substitute for Israel but to be the branch that was grafted in to produce that which Israel was designed to produce. So I'm not confused about this. But Israel refused. But it's interesting to me that God, in, in all of the, watching them through the New Testament, being carried off into captivity for 70 years or however long it was in different times, for them being carried off into captivity, now then, when we're in this day, we go back into the intertestamental period, and there was a man back there named Joseph Asmonea, and he had a son named Judas. 
And Judas was a warrior and a fierce one. And under Roman domination, Judas had this band and he would come and strike the Roman army like a hammer. And he'd hit them and run. And he'd hit them and run. And there were many who believed that Judas Asmonea was the Messiah. The religious and powerful military leader that they thought the Messiah would be. Well, Rome finally got tired of it. We know Judas Asmonea as Judas Maccabees because Maccabee means the hammer. So when we read about it in the, in the, in the, in the scriptures that were written, we read, about, we read the Maccabees, it's the story of Judas Maccabee, this hammer that was coming to attack. Well, when Rome got tired of it, they came up with a pretty ingenious, they thought, ingenious plan. They went to Joseph, the father, and said, if you can stop this nonsense, we will move you and your family to Rome, and you will receive above and beyond what you ever imagined, and we will let you keep your religion. Totally unheard of. There was never a conquering army that let the old religion stay. You look, at, you look through history and it doesn't matter who the conquering army was. The belief system changed to that of the conquering army. So they let, this is why we get to read when Jesus showed up on the scene. This is why we have a, a Roman governor and a high priest both in Jerusalem. Because you've got Romans coexisting with, with the Jews and the Jews still practicing Judaism. So when Jesus is born, Jesus comes, Jesus teaches, Jesus dies. And this following begins. It took a while for the Romans to recognize that that wasn't Judaism. And by that time, it was too late. They couldn't stop it. Why couldn't they stop it? Because of the dispersion. God had intended for it to be by Israel that the blessings would be extended, and guess who it ended up being through? Them. Not as he had intended, not as he had expected, not as I think as he had planned, but the will of God, the work of God was going to be accomplished. This is what I hope that we recognize today. That I may, I may observe unusual things. I may watch the church make unusual turns left and right. I may... I may watch resistance. I may watch drastic change, but I will assure you that the work God is going to establish through the church is going to be established. We get to choose whether we're going to sit on the sidelines in resistance or we're going to be in the mainstream of it and let the blessings we receive flow through us into the blessings of others. But I will assure you that will not happen until we learn to open our mouth. It's quite strange but we will not become the river, the flow that God intended until we learn that, that the way Satan is defeated, at least in one aspect, is by the power of our testimony. To, to actually share by life, share by words, that which God has given us, that it flow very freely and very easily into the life of someone else. We will not, be, we will not do that by being the silent agents of a private kingdom. 
we weren't called into that. We were called into a very public, a public ministry. I can tell you that for sure because Jesus didn't work privately. He didn't work secretly. He didn't work behind the scenes. He opened his mouth and there was a trumpet blast. There was truth. It, was, it, it came by powerful revelation. God is going to do through the church, this branch that was grafted in, everything he intended to do just as he did then. And by that dispersion, by the fact that the Jews had been carried off and often assimilated into those different cultures, but when that message began to come, there was a connection of language, there was a connection of culture, there was a way, because it's like there, there was no other form of communication basically except by that word of mouth. So how could it become, how could it go from a few believers to 5,000 believers, to 10,000 believers, to hundreds of thousands of believers so rapidly. It was because of the dispersion. So when, when James is writing to those who are scattered abroad, he's writing to the diaspora. He's writing to those who have, who have started hearing this message and they are spreading the message. And guess what happens when they hear and believe it and begin to spread it? They begin to be persecuted. That is, that's the purpose largely of, of what James is addressing. Because he not only needed for them to understand what the tribulation and the testing was about, he needed in all the times that they were being tested, he needed them to be growing as well. He needed them not only to be recognizing that, that yes, that, that what you've accepted is causing you to, to, for there to be affliction, but I can't really help you deal with the affliction until you start growing in maturity in the Spirit. Guess what? Same story right here today. Because the, the, the means by which we deal with the persecution, large or small, is the certainty of growing in this maturity of knowing who God is so that you can know who you are. Drastic change in, this, in, in, in how we handle this. So this is what James is doing, writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. <clears throat> Verse two, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation. So do, 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 you, do you see just very quickly this? Yep, I'm recognizing you're being persecuted, but I want to show you how to begin to grow at this very same time. So what, what was the very first encouragement? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into these various types of tests. The phrase, my brethren, is a phrase often found in James because he was doing what still needs to be the message of today. He was, he was marking a community of nations and of faith. Again, these are connections I hope we make. We can truly never see ourselves as an isolated body disconnected from the body of Christ. It will not serve us well. It will, it, it will create an unusual separation that becomes unhealthy. It will 
it will cause us to look beyond and become critical. It, it becomes the source of measurement if we don't see ourselves as a part of something enormously large, a body of Christ, a, the river that I describe. We're stewards of a section, but, but we are a part of something enormous. James was addressing because when you look up that word, my brethren, in Greek, it speaks of a, of a community, and it speaks of a large one. So it speaks to this community of nations and this community of faith. And he says, my brethren, count it all joy. I don't know the right English term. I wish I did, because it would be so impressive if I could just rattle off these parts of speech. But... Where do you assign the all? We have a tendency to read that scripture and connect the all to the, tr to the trouble. Count all the trouble joy. Wouldn't it be no count everything joy? Well, it is, but, what, but that's not what's being said here. He's saying, count the tribulation as all joy. He's referring the all is connected to the joy so that it's all joy. It's not, it's not some joy. It's not partially joy. It's not joy and something else. He says, I want you to count it all joy. I don't know if I'm making myself clear or not. It's kind of where the modifier goes, if that's the right word. Are you an English major? Okay. <laughs> because... I see what you're saying. You're putting it as together with joy instead of trial. Instead of trial. That's right. Now, we understand that Yes, you can put all the trial in there, but the message he's trying to convey is that that trial, all, the trials you're going to face should create all, because the, the phrase, when you take it out of, and your Bibles may say that, maybe why it, it may be easier to understand, because that all means that it is nothing but joy. The, the, the tribulation is nothing but. It's the, it's the, it's all, it's the entirety of it. So it says, count all these diverse temptations to be each matter complete, entire, full joy. How, how many times do we find ourselves there? Now I can, I can connect with all the trials. But I want to know how many times each of us in our lifetime have experienced something so that, that what we've experienced has no margins to the joy. But it is absolute, running over, fully encap capturing, encapsulated by joy. All-encompassing. So that there's, there's no margins to it. There's no edge to it. It is complete because though I can connect with the all trial, I find it far more difficult 
to connect to all joy. Sure. And, you know, you said it, I've said it, I've heard other people say it, that, you know, even though this thing that I went through was miserable, horrible, and, you know, I would not have wanted to go through it because of the results. Yeah, I wouldn't erase it because the results were, were but I want to know why it was, how strange you would feel like, even in the middle of it, to be able to, to live in this all joy that, that James is talking about here because that is a, that's almost conceptually beyond what I can get my mind around. That I could actually, that could actually be true. It's just your focal point. It is. If what you're focusing on, you know, the trials and temptations can be, can be, uh, you can make them bigger than, than they are by focusing on that. Yeah. Well, and again, if I were to ask, and just in the, in the simplest terms, if I, wanted, if I wanted to minimize to the point of diminishing the hurt, would I ever be able to do that by staring at the hurt? So where, where do my eyes have to be fixed? What has, if this is going down, what has to be going up? I've got to have my eyes fixed on him. I have, to, I have to live under this reality of, for God so loved me. And a lot of the joy comes in when you just stop and say, I trust you. Yeah. I trust you. Yeah. And how many times you have to say, I trust you. And the joy, you know, of what we know he's going to do. James kind of, in that phrase, threw me a, a bit of an unexpected curve when I started actually studying it in Greek and recognize where the all was, all joy. And then this, this unusual phrase, if you fall into, that has, that has the connotation of something unexpected. If you fall into, into these temptations unexpectedly, so it's kind of like stumbling into a pool, a swimming pool. How wet do you generally get? when you stumble into it. Now, if you walk into it, you can measure it. What generally happens if you stumble into it? It's all wet. It's, all wet. it's like you, you have stumbled into something and it now encompassed you. That's what, that's what James is referring to, is that you, you have actually fallen into something that, that is a test or a trial that is all-encompassing. It also says when, not if. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when you do. And you'll, you understand the when much more than the if when you understand the outcome, which is where we're, we're fixed to look at. The temptations here is, it's, a, it's really, do you, does your Bible say temptations? The King James does, but does the, does the other say it? Trials. trials. It's really a better word. Because the temptations creates a connection to sin. Satan tempting you to do something wrong. The word, the word trial, has a, again, has a very different connotation because it's not, it's not limited to this sense of an allurement or an enticement to sin. 
but the trials or the distresses of any kind are the kinds which test and purify the faith, test and purify that which is of our Christian character, our Christian nature. We need to understand what, what James is talking about because he's really not talking about us fighting off sin. He's talking about, you know, the, old, the illustration I've given you before about me being the fourth of, of four kids with one bicycle so that when it got to me, because there, there weren't many paved streets when I was a kid around here, so when you got the bike, you were guaranteed to have a flat. So I'd push it down to the Texaco station, and for those of you who remember Britches, Britches was just this kind man, uh, just a good guy, and he would act like that was good part of his day just to get to fix the flat on the bicycle, which I knew it wasn't. But he'd take, he'd take the tube out and he'd patch it, or, but he'd put it in water before he patched it to make sure he found out where the hole was. And then when he'd get it fixed, he'd put air in it and go right back in the water. What was the purpose of the second trip into the water? It was to test the patch, test it to make sure it was strong so that he, he would be convinced that what he had done actually worked. This is the kind of trial we're talking about here. It was trying so that, he, so that God could prove something in us. Because again, remember to whom he's writing. People who are being in great distress, great persecution. What would be the purpose of another test? Well, I want to know before I go into battle the strength of my weapon. I want to know before I go into battle the strength of the person on my left and my right and their resolve to walk with me. You're not going to discover that without the test. You're not going to discover that without the trial. I I give you all the same illustration often. If we wanted to know how strong any of us were, we could go down to this room down here in in this building, in that white room, and lay somebody down on that bench and start putting weight on that bar And you could lift it until you couldn't lift it anymore because the only way we're going to know how strong you are is by the test that tells us what that amount is. Well, this again, this is the kind of test that that we're talking about because if you're going to face persecution, I don't want you to face persecution wondering if that strength is there, wondering if the goodness is there, wondering if the power is there. I want you, if you're going to face persecution, to actually know how strong something is, I don't know how to do that except, without, except with the trial. So James is not setting up something that was designed to be discouraging. He was setting up a truth so that, so that you and I, by reading this now, would understand that that trial that we went through, the reason I can count it as joy is because there was such a great outcome. We don't process that very well. We're not taught that very well. But I will assure you, and we'll get to this in just a second, what what James is describing had an intent of building something in this diaspora who was now responsible for the, because they became this living caravan of this message. This message was being carried place to place by these verbal caravans of people that were moving from place to place 
spreading this word. Did you know, did you hear what Jesus did? Did you hear about the crucifixion? Did you hear that he was resurrected? Did you hear about Pentecost? Do you know they received power? Do you see the power in me? This was a, this was a spiritual caravan of words and people, actions that were moving. And, and James is saying, as this is coming to you, the persecution will come, but it's perfectly okay because it's going to prove to you by that trial how strong the faith is. Think that would be handy today in the, in the lives of, a, of, of the general population of believers that, that have a form of godliness but know not the power thereof? Hebrews chapter 3 or 4, wherever that is. I don't know how, I don't know how for it to come without the trial. Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Knowing that we fully comprehend joy when we fall into temptation, we can understand that the trying of our faith works patience. Some of your scriptures probably say, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. Anybody say that? takes the comma out, knowing this, it just says, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. I can't personally read it correctly that way. Because to me, and, and I'm, it's, a, it's a small point, knowing this comma points back to, to, to knowing something he just said. It points back to verse 2. Knowing this, knowing that you can count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that tells you then that the trying of your faith works patience. So would that be like, I'm going to talk to the doctor's name where he was losing everything, and he was like, it was, he thought it was a bad thing, and it was really a bad thing? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, Steve Brown. Yeah, when he was, he lost his privileges at the hospital because they realized his certification was a DO rather than an MD. And there the DO was not as trained as well as the MD. It took him a while to show them that a DO's training here in the United States was more extensive than an MD. So they, but they were so convinced that Satan was trying to destroy his ministry. So when I, I get this call and get these texts and it's like, would you pray urgently because Satan's trying to do this? It's like, just slow down a minute. Because that may not be Satan. That may be God. That may be God's hand of protection over you for a month. You don't need to be in that hospital. He may see something you don't know because this does not have the flavor or the weight of Satan in it. It has the provision of God in it. So yeah, absolutely. It, it, there's, there's an understanding here of some of, the, some of the things that are happening, but he's saying knowing that your joy works, that, that you can count it, Joy when you're being tested, joy when you're being tried, because you know that, then you'll know that the trying of your faith works patience. Not simply, not simply knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. Knowing this, knowing joy, which he just said, allows you to know that the trying of your faith works patience. Again, it's a small, it, it may be a small detail, but when you read it 
it creates a connection between the joy he speaks of in verse 2, the trying of your faith in verse 3, that the outcome actually becomes patience. This, this to me is, is a, this is something I read. I'll tell you, this isn't, this isn't Randy, but I, it was such a powerful truth. It's, what I read was faith is tested through trials, but not produced by trials. I like that. That was clarifying to me. Yeah, I will. Faith is tested through trials, but not produced by trials. Now, I know that, not simply by the fact that it was stated, but I know that faith doesn't come by trials. How do we get it? Ephesians chapter 2. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That, that's the next scripture I'm going to use. What's, <laughs> what's the Ephesians 2 scripture in about verse 8, 9, and 10? What do you think? Do what? How are we saved? By grace through faith, what's the next phrase? It's a gift of God. I don't get faith through trials. I get faith because faith is a gift of God. That's where we get faith. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. No. What's the Scripture say? Of. By faith of the Son of God. It's His faith. It's faith He gave me. Faith isn't something we muster from within ourselves that can grow because... because of, and be produced by trials. All the trial can do is to show us that faith is there and the strength of that faith. I got faith because it was the gift of God. Faith comes by hearing. And, but, but what's the origin of the hearing? Whose mouth? Yeah, the mouth of God. The Holy Spirit speaks. So my faith always originates as a gift of God. So that I don't get it, it doesn't come. I don't get it because of trials. The trials prove to me that it's there. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, we would really be surprised if the fire could produce silver. But it sure does a good job when you put the silver in the fire. Yeah, that's a it's a wonderful illustration because that's that's exactly what that's exactly what James is talking about. Knowing this that the trying of our faith works patience. Trials reveal what faith we do have, not because God doesn't know how much faith we have. What's God trying to do? Show us. He knows. He knows the abundance of it that he gave us, what he's trying to do with the, with the trials, having us lift weights to see, how, see how, to see how much there is. Now, 
But here's, here's a real key. Trials, as I said, don't produce faith. But when trials are received with faith, they produce the patience that the Scripture says. I think you'll find the answer in what I'm about to say. Because that it is it is such a good question because the, the trial the, the, the trials because again they don't they don't produce the faith. That's that's given to us. They can only show us the size of it. But when trials are received with faith. That's what produces the patience at the end of this verse. But patience is not the inevitable uh, production of the trial. Everybody that's tried doesn't, doesn't understand their faith. As a matter of fact, sometimes the trial creates bitterness. Sometimes the trial creates anger. That trial, which was the test of their faith, when, when it's received in faith, when, when you can actually understand somewhere, again, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I can only use illustrations that are, that are mine, and sometimes those aren't easy to just reach and get. But sitting at my desk, when, when that phone call came from Kate that said that I've been to the doctor and they found a mass. I, I would tell you that was a trial. And I didn't pass for a few hours. And then when the phone call started, and the, and the phone call would come and say, Randy, the Lord just showed me, Kate, with babies. And the one called and said, Lord just showed me Kate with babies, and one of those babies, they gave a name. Well, something started happening because that trial that took me down took me to my knees, but when on my knees, the faith began to have substance. The faith that God had given me began to find heart now that same faith, not that same trial not received in faith won't prove anything. Make you bitter. It make you angry. And you, you can shout at God and say, God, why my kid? That's just like the movie we've been watching. Sure. He was angry. Yeah. But when he understood, when he came to the mountain. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and yes, ma'am. So if trials cannot produce faith, but trials can produce anger, or does it just reveal? It, I, to, to me, it reveals it. 
I don't think it changes much. I think it exposes, I think it exposes much. Because, because when that faith that we have been given, when that, when that trial is met with that faith that we, we've been given, it will expose that faith. But if that faith is absence and anger is actually what's really there, it will expose the anger. I don't think it's producing it. I think it, we, we talk about this in different ways pretty often that very often when, when something comes, it, all the boundaries drop, all the filters drop. It's not because somebody became angry or became aggressive. They, all, they were already. It's just simply revealing something that was probably largely already there. I wrote it this way, patience is not inevitably produced in times of trial. If difficulties are received in unbelief and grumbling, trials can produce bitterness and discouragement. This is why James exhorted us to count it all joy. Counting it all joy is faith's response to a time of trial. I won't mention... The answer, the answer to your question is absolutely yes. It can go on for years. But here's the outcome. I'm, I'm going I'm to try to draw this in the air as best I can. We acknowledge that in our life, if, if I'm going to draw this line, but, but it's going to be a wavy one. We acknowledge in our life that there's going to be times of great victory and there's going to be times of great struggle. And there's going to be times of great victory and there's going to be times of great struggle. Okay? There's going to be mountaintops. There's going to be valleys. But when an outsider looks at us, they're not supposed to see these mountains and these valleys. Why not? Because Paul gave such a good picture. He said, I prayed that God would take this from me, and he wouldn't. So whatever he had lasted. It didn't go away. It was probably a lifetime. Whatever it was. But he said, it's okay because I've learned to glory in that infirmity. How could he? Because if, if I draw this line here and I measure from that line to the peak of this mountain, I get this much. But if I look at this provision of the Holy Spirit and I measure this line from here to the depth of that valley, I have this much. So what was Paul's statement? Where I am weak, he's strong. So he said, I learned to glory in that infirmity because that's where the provision is the strongest. That's where I see what God does. So Paul is acknowledging that this is happening to him. He prayed three times that God would take it and God said no. So he had this outcome. So I do believe it lasts a long time. I, I believe it can. I don't believe they all do, but I believe it can. 
But I, I would pray that the outcome, and I, I watch this happen in people. I, I watch my sister, Donna, who has this amazing hope that her crippled leg will be healed. But it has worked something in her. She will tell of these stories. She will tell of these moments, of these great moments of visitation of God. Created a terrible hardship for her as a child. But you will not get out of her a moment of complaint. It is through that there is great glory. We had this conversation just last weekend. She said there was a point in this choir loft at 17, when the, when, when the Holy Spirit says, you are not crippled. Took it away from her. And she said, I've never lived another day under this thought that I was crippled. Yes, ma'am. She that's that's very much the way she has lived. I mean, their house is a is three stories. But so I, I've watched a lifetime of struggle, work, brilliant faith. Because she knows how strong it is. And she'll tell you she, you know. She 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 wants rid of that that look and that leg, and someday she knows ultimately that it will be gone. But she wants it gone before then, not for herself, but for the glory of God. She wants that. She wants to be able to wear that evidence. One uh, one more one more verse, uh, verse four. Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Again, keep it in the context. Understanding James is so important to keep it in the context. Writing to the dispersion, to the diaspora, people that were being persecuted, people that needed to understand the strength of their faith. And he says, let that patience that's coming out of this struggle, out of this trial, let it have its perfect work or let it have its full effect. Going back to this illustration of if I'm going to deal with the, with the trial and I want the outcome not to be because I'm focused on the trial but because I'm focused on God, what will that perfect work be? That he is my full provision that he is the entirety of the answer. That I will not find an answer in any other thing other than him. There was not another work. There was not another provision. There was not a second choice. There was not a substitute. That, that the, the, if, if, this is, if that patience that I learned 
It's going to do its complete and entire work. It's going to do it because I have this understanding now of the reality of Christ in me, the full provision. It wasn't just that he gave me faith. I found the faith that is, in, that is him. That's a complete work. That is a full, absolute full provision. Let it have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire. Any chance of that happening until we discover in the full reality of it that the only way that I can be perfect, and I don't think that that was just a challenge he gave us, I think it was an instruction, I think it was a certainty and a promise that he was making that you and I today can be perfect. Not of ourselves, but but a perfect one lives in us. And when I release him to have these hands, use this heart, use this mouth, he will produce perfection through me. I can't glory in it because I know it wasn't me. But he's perfect. So the perfection James is talking about is not trying to just understand faith. It's understanding that faith has a name and its name is Jesus. He's the provision. I can say faith, but somewhere I have to acknowledge that that faith that I have been given is not a substance of something. It's a person of somebody. That's a different story. Because I, I can measure Faith that I can count, well, there's one, there's one measure of faith, there's two measures of faith, there's three measures of faith, but when that faith becomes a person, it's just a person. And then I have a full provision. It's done its complete work. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm crucified with Christ, yet not, but Christ lives in me. We begin to understand these scriptures and what, what James is connecting to or what James is announcing first that others connected to. With every reality of my weakness, I discover him, as we're talking about, and his strength and authority. Being perfect must be the result of him in me and not my striving for that end. And the only way to want nothing is to discover everything. Believe that? The only way in my life to actually want or lack nothing is to discover everything. And everything has a name. And it's a name that we know. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.